0: Hello and welcome to the Modern House Podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co founder of the Modern House. Today's guest is my great friend and long standing business partner, Albert Hill. I first met Albert in an English lesson at school. He had an explosion of dark hair and, for reasons known only to himself, the name Keith sewn onto the back pocket of his pleated trousers. His early days as an innovator were revealed when he turned up to the football pitch one day wearing a pair of gleaming white boots, while the rest of us were still in black umbros. Unfortunately, they were two sizes too small, which meant that he stalked across the pitch like an egret in stilettos. Albert has always been a creative thinker, and I will be forever grateful that he came up with the idea for the modern house and asked me to be his partner. We've worked together for 16 years now, starting the company from our bedrooms, and generally making things up as we go along. Albert has spent his career immersed in the world of design and architecture, working as a journalist at The Guardian, Blueprint and Wallpaper, before co-founding The Modern House in 2005. If he were a guest on Mastermind, his specialist subject would undoubtedly be the 20th century Houses of England. Today we'll be discussing the three living spaces that have had the most profound impact on him, including his childhood recollections of home. As always on this podcast, we'll be touching on the five design principles that contribute to a successful living environment. Space, light, materials, nature and decoration. If any of this strikes a chord, a reminder that you can read more about these principles and how to apply them to your own home in my new book which is called A Modern Way to Live. It's published by Penguin and is available from most self-respecting bookshops, museum shops, art shops, online shops, top shops, ship shape shops and chip shops. Probably not those to be honest but you get the idea. Right on with the podcast and I very much hope you enjoy it. So Albert before we start let's just set the scene of where we are. So we were in Hampshire, which is where you and I both live mm-hmm. handily. And quite rightly, you try and get away from the noise and mayhem of the family. So you rent a space at the end of your road. I do. As an office. And we've hired out the meeting room for the morning. Oh, we have. Um, and it's, you would probably describe it as the diametric opposite of everything that we talk about on the podcast. So there isn't a single window in this room. No. There's no natural light. No. There's some very, very harsh ceiling lighting going on. There's a big screen on the wall,
1: which must be about 80 inches. Yeah, but there is some greenery in the corner. However, when you approach it, it turns out to be fake. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's some sort of fake tree.
0: There's a kind of shiny boardroom table, some carpet tiles, and so it goes on, lots of plastic trunking, but quite well soundproofed. So, yeah. <laughs> quite good for a podcast. So, we have to suffer for our art sometimes. I mean, I think normally on the podcast, we talk a bit about someone's background, maybe in their early life and things. Mm-hmm. But I think your choices are very autobiographical
1: okay?
0: Uh, and they follow a sort of logical progression through your, your life in a way. So let's get straight into your first choice, which is your grandparents' house in Alborough in Suffolk. Yeah. Which I've never been to. So tell me all about it and, and why you've chosen it.
1: Well, both of my grandparents' houses on the my mother and father's side were both incredibly important to me. When we went on holiday, that's where we would go. We would rarely go anywhere further afield than those two places. So there was my paternal grandparents in Suffolk and my maternal grandparents in Oxfordshire, which was a house that I was always told was the oldest house in Oxfordshire. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know. Incredible, beautiful house, flagstone floors. You know, really amazing, ancient house in the countryside Um, or in Oxford. Yeah, in the middle of the countryside. Okay, it's actually an old farmhouse, and it was on a working farm, although the farm was rented out to a farmer. So that was a real, you know, I actually grew up in London, in South London. So that's where our main house was, but we would disappear to this incredible idyllic retreat and uh it still crops up in my dreams weekly that house you know it's still the place that I go to in my imagination if I want to escape you know
0: oh that's amazing why is that
1: it was just so magical in that it just felt like a sort of entire universe of its own and it just had such kind of rich history and memories and you know what have you so what what do you if you think
0: back to that house what do you see what do you smell and what do you taste kind of
1: thing Yeah, well, my grandfather had died before I was born. So it was just my grandmother that was there. But he was a kind of art collector and various other things. So it just had amazing stuff in there. And it was like piled high just everywhere, just stuff. But it was all amazing stuff, you know, so there were attics and you know, all sorts just um absolutely kind of crazy. And then there were you know orchards and vegetable gardens and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um so a long way from London, in other words. Completely the opposite yeah. to South London where I was at school and lived. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to Aubrah then, what was yes. that one like? So Auburgh was a house called Brick Kiln Cottage. So I presume it must have been a brick kiln at some point. It was a little cottage. And I think what was interesting about it was that my uncle, who was an architect, had possibly even while he was still at architecture school, designed a very, well, contemporary at the time extension, I think in the late 60s. So it was an old cottage with essentially a glass box sort of on the side of it. My grandparents were very elderly, so they very rarely move from their chairs in the old cottage. And I, as an energetic young child, who was often the only sort of youth in the house, basically got sort of plonked in this room that my uncle had designed. And, and I had a television in it, that room, which I didn't have at home. So that was very exciting. But really, it was just floor to ceiling glass and it had cork floors as well, I remember. And you actually walked down steps to get into it. It was just a space like I'd never experienced and a space that I spent a lot of time in, a lot of time on my own in. I remember there was a record player in there as well and my dad's a record collection, so I used to just sit there and listen to records on my own. <laughs> okay. Is that where the Elvis love comes from? That was that no, my dad
0: wasn't it. Was, um a lot of Rolling Stones, I remember, and a lot of early yeah. reggae. That's interesting. They're so formative, aren't they? These early experiences. So what did you what did it look out onto this this room? Um
1: yeah, it looked over the garden. So it was really idyllic and beautiful. Yeah. I couldn't quite remember what it was like, and I couldn't find any photographs of it. But I did find, in fact, last week, a painting that my grandfather did of the cottage with the extension on it. So that was really nice to see. Is that where your interest in modern architecture probably stems from? I only actually sort of made that link quite recently, actually.
0: Yeah.
1: Certainly the feeling of a bright, open plan space with simple, natural materials overlooking the landscape yeah that was definitely a very formative you know experience yeah. of that sort of space and and a love of it yeah yeah
0: would you say that that juxtaposition of old and new yeah is your
1: favorite thing <laughs> I wouldn't say it's my favorite thing but I would certainly yeah it's always exciting I mean it was really odd actually because you did have this cottage. And then you literally stepped down into this kind of sort of bubble, I suppose. So it really was yeah. not integrated into the old cottage in any way whatsoever.
0: Yeah, which is nice, isn't it? In a way? And, and the act of stepping
1: down into it
0: reinforces that, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it was fantastic. So tell us a bit more about your grandparents. So what was their presence like in your childhood?
1: Yeah, well, my grandfather was an interior designer. And so the house was always very sort of carefully put together and presented and yeah. he was a very lovely chap but they were very elderly as I say when I was young so they had kind of you know living carers and things like that and really I remember them just sitting there not really moving or not really saying anything apart from having Cinzano every day <laughs> at I think five o'clock or something like that yeah and my parents who were quite sort of you know, I guess we're kind of hippies, I suppose you could say. I always remember it being a slightly strange juxtaposition of us all sort of bundling out of the car from South London, like, you know, like a bunch of hippies into this very sort of composed, serene atmosphere with two sort of statuesque old people sitting in a chair, sipping Cinzano, you know. I also like the idea of, you know, you taking yourself
0: off into the modern extension to listen to Start Me Up at high volume.
1: Exactly. That's exactly, that's exactly what it was, yeah. And watching Timmy Mallet on TV. What else can we think about in terms of that house? I mean, talk about the materiality of it. Well, as I say, I really remember the cork, Yeah, tiles on the floor and funnily enough in our house now we have cork tiles actually on the walls in three four rooms and we had those at my house in south london as well do you still like them still love them yeah Yeah. just because they're natural they really soften sound yeah and they're very inexpensive yeah Uh, so tickle the boxes really yeah
0: they're very divisive aren't they i think some people would just think that was just the craziest thing you could ever do be to put a cork floor in but for yeah. other people, it's a really beautiful thing. I mean, it, yeah, they're um, mundane in a way, in such a, in such a lovely way.
1: Yeah, that's right. And they're they're also quite kind of sustainable because, uh, you know, cork grows yeah. pretty quickly. But yeah, the ones that were in the house were the kind of varnished kind. And the ones that we have in our house now are the sort of raw kind. Do you pin things up on them as well? I really try not to, but my wife does all the time. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that there. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your feelings about Suffolk, because it seems mm. to me you still go back there quite a lot, don't you? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Suffolk and Norfolk, certainly my favourite places in the world, really. Um, yes, I suppose just the flatness, the open skies, the feeling that you're sort of slightly on the edge of the earth, because obviously the sea is there. And I just think it's its a landscape that's unlike anywhere else in the UK, really. It's really not the sort of green rolling hills of, you know, that you imagine written of, you know, storybooks to be. So it's kind of more more Dutch in a way or something. Do you like being by the sea? Not particularly. No. When I was nine, we moved from London to Lyme Regis in Dorset. We're going to talk about that house actually yeah. um in a moment. And that house was right on the seafront, so much so that when in stormy weather, uh literally, you know, pebbles and shingle be thrown up against the window, you know. And it was just I never really I never really liked being by the sea. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you see, you're an inland rivers kind of man. I, I love yeah rivers. I'm all about the rivers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I'm with you on that as well. I was thinking about this yesterday. That in the early days of the modern house, we sort of loosely divided yes. the workload, didn't we? Where, we did. Yeah. Where I would go out and and see potential clients in London, which yeah. is where I lived, and you spent a lot of time on the M25 and and beyond, going yeah. to see lots of rural houses. Yeah. Of of all the stuff that you've seen in Suffolk, yeah. can you tell us about
1: any of the other houses that you've seen, any of the other kind of architects that you admire in that area? There was an architect called John Penn in Suffolk, who had a very brief, very productive period in the kind of late sixties, I think it was. And kind of right at the beginning of when we started, um, the Modern House, they were all in various states of dilapidation. Maybe one, maybe two were sort of in in a good state. We managed to sell a few of them and they got very celebrated. And now the penthouses are, you know, really flourishing and loved and preserved and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I really love being part of that trajectory of, of them being, you know, lost, yeah. forgotten unloved things to being the sort of uh, recognized masterpieces that they are today and why are they masterpieces they were called temple houses by john penn and they were just like super simple they were really absolutely stripped back to the most minimal forms you know you could think of and so when you approach them both in terms of the spaces and the materials it's just so legible so clear. And just so kind of perfectly simple. I think that's what's great about it. Yeah.
0: Quite early on, as well, in, in in the journey of the modern house, we went to a party, didn't we, at, at the fashion designer Margaret Howell's shop on oh, yes. Wigmore Street. Yes. Do you remember she had an exhibition of photographs? Exactly. Of, yeah. Of the John Penn houses. Absolutely. Yeah. And she was certainly also quite influential. I think in in sort of yeah, in bringing him him to recognition. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff up there. It feels like a very creative part of the country, doesn't it?
1: Yes. And I think obviously it's, you know, above North London. And I think there's a rich history of North London, which is particularly strong in terms of modern architecture. Yeah. I think there's a link there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Let's move on to choice number two, which you briefly touched on there. So it's called Sundial House. Yeah. Which is a a really beautiful arts and crafts house right on the seafront in Lyme Regis. Yeah. Yeah. So you lived there as a child, didn't you? Just tell us about this one. How old were you when you moved there? I was
1: nine. I moved on my ninth birthday. Okay. Um, Was that a
0: happy birthday?
1: A strange birthday. (laughs) I mean, the story goes that um, it was owned by friends of friends of ours. My parents and my mother in particular had visited them there a couple of times. And I think they'd said to them, you know, if ever you want to sell this house, you know, give us a call. And then I think, you know, as I understand it, sort of a decade later, that call came and my mother said, Right, we're out of London. You know, we're moving. And I suppose that was my earliest taste and insight of the power of a house. So, completely override any other practical considerations. That's interesting,
0: isn't it? That's interesting. I mean,
1: it was an incredible house, as I say, right on the seafront. Um, Designed, I think, in 1901, 1992. Arts and crafts house um, designed by, I think it's called Arnold Mitchell, architect called Arnold Mitchell. I saw that you can stay in the house. You can now, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it really is beautiful. It's called Sundial House because it's got a big sundial on the front and it's got lots of kind of fossils um, in the wall. And tourists would always assume that it was a museum. (laughs) So I had the bedroom next to the uh, front door and we never locked the door given that it was Dorset. And when I was sleeping in late as a teenager, it happened more than once that I'd wake up with a, you know, American tourist looking for where the kind of um, pay desk was (laughs) so that they could go and look around. (laughs) So, you know, that was another sort of instructive, lesson to me that you know there are some houses that again just really get people going yeah you know what did you say to them when they came in (laughs) i don't know
0: (laughs) probably something not very nice oh that's so good isn't it (laughs) so okay but so you recognize so this is at a young age you recognize that you lived in an important piece of architecture
1: yes but you know in a way that you do when you're young it that's kind of subconscious rather than a You know, so you certainly don't walk around with, you know, white gloves on, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sort of reading up on the finer literature of it. Which is what you would do now. <laughs> Which is what I'd do now, exactly, and sort of take photos of the, you know, of the corners of the rooms and things like that. Yeah.
0: So arts and crafts really uh, is obviously about craftsmanship and making things yeah. by hand and
1: can you tell us about some of the details in there? Yeah, I mean, the most impressive is the sundial on the front, which is obvious. I think it's sandstone. The whole house is sandstone. Yeah. And there were kind of beautiful mouldings on all the ceilings, you know, it being on the sea of, you know, shells and what have you. Yeah. And then at the front, bizarrely, there are two sort of arrow slits, like a kind of um, castle or something. Okay. So, uh, again, what we used to do was that they were right... The arrow slits were right by the front, so we would basically hide behind them with water pistols. And when people used to stop and stare at the house, we used to... Get, <laughs> get them in the eye. Basically, yeah,
0: aim, aim for the eye. It is quite fortress-like in a way, isn't it? In a funny way. It's actually... Yeah. I was going to ask you about it spatially because it's, it's, yeah. it's quite narrow and it's yeah. sort of vertical, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And, I th- and one of the defining features of it is that it hasn't got a garden, but it's got a roof terrace. OK. So that was always a real struggle. That was one of the biggest downsides and why I think we moved out eventually. How old were you when you moved? Maybe 16, 17, something okay, like that. OK, so you were there for a decent
0: chunk yeah. of your childhood. Yeah. yeah. So what was that like then, not having a garden? Did you resent that?
1: Well, there was a park just behind it, so you'd have to yeah. kind of go into the park to walk the tortoise, as I remember. <laughs> but that was a long day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you did feel a little bit cooped up. And because it was right on the front where there were tons of tourists walking past, you did feel a little bit sort of,
0: yeah, hemmed in. Yeah. So you said that you... you uh, as a result of living on the sea with that kind of weather coming in. Yeah. You're not a huge fan of it. So what what, what was it? Does it get quite
1: wild there? It got really wild. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's that scene in the film French Lieutenant's Woman on the Cobb where there's those waves, huge waves crashing over this, um, this Meryl Streep, I think it is. And that was the sort of weather we used to get full frontal, just waves with rocks in it thrown at the windows.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: I remember it very well. It's quite surprising. It's made of sandstone as well. It's quite surprising it's still still. Spending. I know. I know. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes, honestly, I would think, oh, can you just shut up with those <laughs> waves going on and on? Well, yeah, that's
0: interesting, though, isn't it? You can have too much nature, can't you, in a way? Uh, yeah. Because you and I went to school in Dorset as well.
1: Yeah.
0: And we used to go on those geography field trips, didn't yeah. we, to Studland Bay and Lulworth Cove, etc. Yeah. Do you like that whole Jurassic Coast? I don't know. Yeah. Coastal areas don't really do it for me. So if you were to imagine your happy place and you
1: built yourself a house, where is it? Oh, it's certainly sort of, you know, in the crook of a little river, you know, with lush kind of vegetation. And it's certainly in the countryside. Yeah. You know, with kind of endless
0: fields. So inside the house, how was it decorated? Because your dad.
1: Mm. Is a great art collector as well, right? Mm. Yeah. Was it was it full of his paintings? Um, it was full of paintings. Yeah, my mother is a writer, so essentially they would lock themselves up in their rooms all day doing their thing, and we would have yeah free reign of the rest of the house. And my brother and my sister who are much older than me; would always have their friends round. Yeah, so it was yeah I suppose quite a loud chaotic house really was it yeah with your bedroom as a kind of refuge and there were dogs and you know so did you spend quite a lot of time in your bedroom yes and in fact we went to boarding school and that was certainly my decision to sort of go to boarding school (laughs) my parents yeah okay I just didn't really enjoy The the mayhem yeah the mayhem of home life
0: really So have you learned from that in your own life now? Like, is it much more
1: controlled environment than that where you live? Um, One tries, of course, but, you know... (laughs) What would your kids say? (laughs) You know, I think what we try to do is certainly make it a more family-centric communal house where we live, because really our the house where I grew up was, a, was really a sort of um, almost like a co-working building, you know, <laughs> in that everyone had their separate spaces and did their separate things and occasionally might come together and okay. you know, say hello to each other.
0: Okay. So is that because there were quite a few rooms, but none of them were particularly sort of large for, for gathering in a sense? Because it does look quite small, actually, from the pictures.
1: Yes, exactly. I think, you know, houses before... I suppose, before the late 20th century, really, were tended to be little sort of rooms. Yeah, more cellular, aren't they? More cellular, yeah,
0: that's right. So we touched on your your dad's art collecting. So I'd love to just ask about your own Uh impulses as a collector. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get so nervous. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because when we were at university, I remember, I came round to your house one day and you showed me inside your wardrobe and there was just a huge like teetering piles of Nike trainers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you were in a phase of collecting niche training shoes. Yeah. And selling them on the
1: internet, I think, didn't you? Like, you sold them to kind of Japan and places like that. That's right. And what's really bizarre is that my 11-year-old son does that now. Does he really? He does. He does exactly the same thing. You're kidding. That's amazing. Yeah, which is really odd. I find that really interesting. So, therefore, do you think that that
0: impulse is a kind of innate thing?
1: Um... Yes, the collecting impulse, but I was always wanting to sell stuff, I suppose, yeah. as well. You know, because you beyond, had a shop, didn't you? Beyond this, just yeah, so when I was at university in Bristol, I had a train shop, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I can't say met with any great success, but um it certainly happened. And in fact that was really that was what? Late nineties. So that would have been the kind of birth of eBay and things like that. So I was very, very early eBay seller. And what were you getting out of doing that? I suppose I like that connoisseurship aspect, I suppose. I like the sharing, the global sharing of enthusiasms about design and, you know, what have you. And I suppose I like that sort of, I suppose, the buzz of buying something from here and selling it over there, I yeah.
0: suppose. And the, and
1: the corresponding uplift and, uh, yeah. and different marketplace. Yeah, I just love the idea that you can take something from one context and put it into another context. And raise its value by doing so.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. And you did the same thing with Memphis Furniture, didn't you? So obviously- I tried to do that, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you, you,
0: you one day you also showed me into your dad's garage lock-up yeah. in Lyre Regis, <laughs> which was just full, bless him, of all of your Memphis furniture. Yes, so it was. Lots of Sotsas stuff. That's right. And for those who aren't familiar with Memphis, it was a kind of hugely... Exuberant period of design, postmodernism in in the 1980s mainly, wasn't it? That's it. And
1: it was all about pattern and
0: colour and, you know, slightly outlandish forms. That's right.
1: And produced some of the biggest bits of furniture you could possibly imagine. They had a bed that was a boxing ring. It's one of their most (laughs) famous pieces. Did you have that? I didn't have that. And luckily, you know, my dad, um, it wouldn't have fit into my dad's uh, garage. But yeah, it's about twice the size of this room, that bed. Really? Why were you collecting it? What was that about? Um, why was I collecting it? I mean, I, I really liked it, and, and I really liked it as a sort of um, furniture that veered towards the sphere of arts. You know, it was a sort of crossover. And it was uh, pretty unloved at the time, but it had a huge impact when it came out. Yeah. So again, I sort of recognised that it was. Due a moment in the sun, and I just couldn't believe how cheap it was. Okay. At the time. Well, what actually happened was I bought loads of it. I put it all in my father's um, garage/slash studio. um, And he phoned me one day and he said, I've tripped over that beeping bit of furniture (laughs) 20 times (laughs) now or something like that. Just get this crap out (laughs) of my workspace. So um, I found a dealer to take it all off my hands in one swoop because my dad was going to go crazy. My dad would basically have turned it into firewood, I think, unless I had. I mean, of course, now you look back and it was all super valuable, great stuff. And now it's, you know, be sell for hundreds of thousands. But yeah, that's frustrating. What are you collecting at the moment then? I'm collecting tapestries at the moment, actually. Okay. How come? I think that they, again, have been underrated and undervalued because they've been put in the craft bucket, usually. And also, they're often done by women, and women tend to have been undervalued in the art world until more recently. Yeah. And also, I think that compared to paintings, they've got a little bit more, obviously, kind of texture and tactility. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, in this era of kind of screen addiction... That sort of texture and tactility is just more and more important, I think. Having things in your life that not only your eyes can respond to, but your fingers can respond to, you know. And also my dad has always made rugs and I've always lived with them. So I've always lived with textiles as well. Do you have
0: any advice for anyone that is thinking about starting a collection of something or becoming a collector? What are your Mm. sort of own internal rules around it?
1: Well, I always purchase through auction yeah, because you know that that's selling at a fair price then. Do you see what I mean? Because it's been put on the open market. Okay. It's found its level. And it's found its, and that is its level. I mean, you might have a freak day and it goes over or under. Yeah. But essentially, if you buy from a dealer, I find you never quite know whether you're getting a good price or not, you yeah. know. Also, I always try to look for people who have had some sort of critical acclaim at some point in their career. Okay. Even if. Even if not today. Yeah. Even if not today. Even if they've completely dropped off the radar. Yeah. I mean, those are my favorite purchases. Uh, people who, like in 1971, had you know had a huge show at the ICA and they were the next big thing, and then they dropped off the radar for some reason. Okay. And just trying to rehabilitate some, you know, people like that. That's what
0: I enjoy. That's interesting. And presumably, wouldn't you say as well that you have to buy something
1: that you like? You absolutely have to buy something that you like. Yeah. I think, you know, in collecting as in business, one of the best things someone said to me was, you know, trust your gut, but continue to educate your gut, you know. Right. Right. So it's that sort of, you know, continually learning and looking and educating so that when that moment comes where you have to make a split second decision as to whether put, to, you know, click or put your hand up in that auction, you've kind of trust your instincts.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very entrepreneurial a lot of what you're talking about and it's about curation. So a lot of this feeds into the modern house and, mm. and, and the story behind the company. So can you just briefly describe how the modern house originated?
1: Where did that come from? So I was working as a journalist at the Design Architecture Editor at Wallpaper Magazine. And I've been working as a journalist for a long time. And as I say, I'd, I'd done a few sort of entrepreneurial, you know, failures in the past with trainers and what have you. And I'd always, you know, had an eye out for doing something like that. And anyway, I got the opportunity to go out to Florida to write a story about a company in Sarasota there that sold great houses. Sarasota happened to be a particularly interesting town for, for modernist architecture. It's where Paul Rudolph was born and raised, and there was a whole circle of people and great houses there. A lot of those houses were being demolished, and there was a realtor, as they call him in the States, who decided to try to sell the houses to... Kind of well, wealthy New Yorkers basically as, as second homes, partly as a way of running a business and partly a way of kind of preserving them. And I suppose I came back to England and actually my wife was one of those sort of obsessive people who looks at Rightmove for fun every day, you know. <sighs> And I was, I could never understand it. Like, why are you doing this? Just to interrupt you there, I reckon it would have been prime
0: location in those days. It would have been prime location, exactly. Funnily enough, move wasn't really... No. Because this is 2004, 05, it wasn't particularly in the public consciousness like it is now, was it?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. It's very sort of early days of everything being done online, I suppose. Yeah. And my, yeah, so my wife was looking for a new job at the time and I said look I've just been out to Florida to do this thing I think you should start it here because you're really into homes and stuff and I think one day she turned around to me and said can you just stop going on about it if you think it's such a good idea you know you do it (laughs) also at that time I interviewed a for the independent newspaper a company called Hyperkit Graphic Designers and they were telling me about this house Called Six Pillars, just round the corner from where they lived, that'd been on the market for a while. It's kind of classic modern house. And I thought, mm. and then I obviously spoke to you about it, and I spoke to you about it because obviously you had al- always known what you were talking about when it came to design and architecture. It's good to be. <laughs> um, and you were also one of the only friends who had managed to actually buy a flat at that time yeah so you're the only person i knew pretty much of our generation who'd actually kind of gone through that housing ladder yeah. Um, and also, you know, we'd obviously built up a lot of trust and friendship, having known each other for yeah. years. And you had you had in fact just started architecture school. You'd started a sort of stab at. Yeah, I had a midlife crisis, didn't I? A very early midlife yeah. crisis. Yeah, exactly. So I think we got talking about it, didn't we? Yeah. I remember we went to the to the to the pub up in uh, Highgate and just started talking about it. Yeah. And I think that conversation certainly gave me the confidence to yeah. do it. And then you kind of came on board full time pretty much very soon afterwards. Didn't that's you? right.
0: Yes. I think looking back on it, I think I because I just left the world of interiors because I thought I need to be an architect. My my, my dad's an architect. My granddad yeah. is an architect. This, this must be my calling. Yeah. Unless I try it, I'm never going to get it out of my system. Yeah, that's it. And I did a term at the Bartlett, which mm. is part of UCL before it became... Really, quite a quick crossroads decision about yeah. do we do we try and give this thing that we've called the modern house a proper go? Yeah. Or do I spend you know the best part of seven years trying to be an architect? And I just instinctively thought it was just I just kind of knew it was going to work. And I don't I, I can't put my finger on why that is. I just thought it was a great concept. Obviously, it is now. Look back on it, but at the time,
1: so by dragging you to the pub on that day, mm. I have robbed the world of some incredible Matt Gibbard buildings. <laughs> It's
0: such, is, a, it's such a blessing that you is, did it. Is that it's right? the greatest blessing. I thank you every day, no, Albert. No, no. I do genuinely. It's, it's like no.
1: I'd love to have seen uh, <laughs> seen what you'd have done. But there you go.
0: But this is the thing. Don't don't you think to yourself that I just feel incredibly grateful that you and I can immerse ourselves in this world that we just completely love in design and architecture, and that we can visit houses and we can you know debate it and we can write about it. And in some senses, we can author it, but we don't have to go through the difficulty of practicing it, which is the hardest <laughs> bit. And I, I greatly admire people that do. I think it's incredibly difficult. It's such a, and my dad said to me, just don't be an architect. Yeah. I said that on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's very difficult to get things built. The planning system's really awkward and it all takes a long time. So I've, I feel really grateful, actually, that I can kind of immerse myself in it. And not necessarily have to go through that difficulty. Yeah. And you can, of course, you know, you've refurbished your own house as if over the years, and you mm. can you can get a taste of it, can't mm. you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And anyone no, can. We are no, we are in- incredibly lucky, really, to meet the people we meet and see the things that we see.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to your third choice because this is a house that you would have seen during your TMH days, presumably. Yes. Uh huh. So this is called Turn End, yeah. which is a 1960s house in the village of Haddenham in Buckinghamshire, Yeah. designed by Peter Aldington, who mm. still lives there. Yes.
1: It's actually a collection of three houses. So yeah. Turn End is one of them. I think Middle Turn is the other one, and I can't remember the name of the third one. Okay, something else, Turn. Yeah, exactly. And you can go and visit... Yep. Uh, them uh, on occasionally I, th- I think there's something called the Turn End Trust which is well worth looking up and visiting. It is amazing. Peter was a very active young architect who designed lots of amazing houses um, but actually at uh, a very young age for an architect he decided to to give it up architecture as he says, just because the sort of pressures of the planning systems and clients and things meant that he couldn't actually um, express himself in the way that he wanted. So he, in fact, he turned to gardening. Yeah. So he built himself this amazing group of three houses, and then he spent the next sort of 20 years creating this amazing garden. And the wonderful thing is, is that the garden is so intrinsically integrated with the house. In the bedroom, for instance, you can see, you know, the garden actually comes into the bedroom at one point. I mean, it's just incredible. And it's one of those houses, I I suppose I always like the house. I always admired it because it's really hard to photograph. (laughs) Right. It's, you know, I found doing what we do that there are some houses photograph incredibly well.
0: Yeah.
1: And actually, when you get there, they're a not quite as good as they look in the photos. Yeah. There's some houses which are even better, you know, yeah, so than true. the photos. And there are some which obviously, you know, meet the hype. But this was one of those ones that it's so kind of complex and nuanced that it's just impossible to, to give an idea of it. Um, why, why is that? Photograp- How do you explain that? Because actually, the delights of it are not kind of showy in a way it's actually the way that he's manipulated space and the way that he's manipulated materials on a very sort of micro level so it really you do have to walk around the space and use all of your kind of vision to experience it's really a spatial experience rather than a sort of two-dimensional visual experience i suppose
0: yeah so true I always say that about Alvar Aalto as well. Didn't you feel that like about when we went to yeah. Alvar Aalto's house and studio? Yeah, very, very akin to, yeah. to that. Yeah. yeah, because it it is about. You're right. It's about the surfaces and the and the atmosphere and the way that it feels and and, it it might be the way that the light comes into the space or, and also there are really fantastic changes, you know, subtle changes of, ceiling height or
1: yeah, that that right. just
0: really change your experience as you move through it. Yeah, that's it. I think that's a really fascinating point you make about how you see something through the lens of a camera. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reminds me of the early days of, of the modern house in a way where, I don't know what you think, but as soon as the photographs came back from the photographer and you look through the set, yeah, instinctively you kind of knew if this thing was going to sell or not.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: Because it, it, I I think it's, it's such... It, it seems to me it's the most important part of the whole process. Mm. Yeah. And regardless of how much you enjoyed the visit and how much you thought it was a great building when you were there yeah you saw I found that you saw you see it in a different light when the photos come in absolutely yeah and and we would obsessively talk to the photographers about how they had to visit at a certain time of day when the weather was right and you know the angles that we wanted them to shoot at and the the rooms we wanted them to get Yeah, yeah 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 and I think that's always been a key differentiator hasn't it this idea that yeah, you know the 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 photo shoot has to be something that takes, you know, a day rather than yeah. an hour.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And we always try to speak with the owners beforehand to talk to them about what time of day, you know, the light hits certain bits of the building to make yeah. sure that, you know, the photographer's in the right place at the right time and what have you. Yeah. But there's a fascinating project I'm doing um you know obviously i have this cottage um little harp in wales and photographers have been staying there and photographing it so it's really fascinating to see the same space yeah. viewed through different eyes yeah exactly and these are photographers you know some are fashion photographers some are architecture photographers some of this sort of photographers and yeah, it's just amazing to see your you know a building that you have been in so many times through the eyes of someone else.
0: Exactly. So getting back to turn end, can you tell us about
1: some of the rooms in the house? Well, I think the most memorable room, I suppose, is the kind of kitchen living room. And they're all very modestly sized. Yeah. But I think, as you said earlier, he uses very clever shifts in floor levels and just shifts, subtle shifts in materiality to delineate spaces Mm. and create a sort of real complexity Mm. um, in a very small space. I was reading something recently that said, actually, you know, everyone's obsessed with the size of rooms. But in fact, the human brain very quickly becomes accustomed to the size of a space and doesn't derive any pleasure from a large room what the human brain derives pleasure from is uh shifting in in the scope of spaces so essentially if you have one room that has two different ceiling heights or floor heights that will be a much more rewarding space than a large open box exactly right yeah couldn't agree more yeah, the sitting room
0: at turn end is 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 very tight, but it's yes. it's it's got a very tall ceiling with a mono pitch roof. Yeah. And I think it's got clear story glazing, so it's got a lovely yeah. wash of
1: light over it. Yeah. And then he's built in a lot of the furniture, hasn't he? That's right, yeah, exactly. So it's obviously been so carefully, you know, thought about every square centimetre.
0: Yeah. And what about the bedroom? Because I I think the bed's built in as well, isn't it? The
1: bed's built in, yeah. And there's this amazing sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but a sort of almost a a sort of waist-high skylight. It's very difficult to describe. That has, it's almost like a sort of inbuilt window box that has lots and lots of plants and greenery in it. So you get this amazing light coming in at ground level that filters through all this um, greenery it's just amazing uh, yeah we should encourage anyone to go and visit
0: it because as you say it's home to the public and i think it's a great example of how a house doesn't have to be big to no. be incredibly engaging that's right yeah it's all about varying the
1: experience and also it has no outlook it has no view that's the other thing yeah right so how uh, does it relate to the garden then Well, again, you know, and the windows that you see are not sort of at head height. Yeah. As you say, the clear story high windows and and the window I referred to, which is sort of uh, floor level. Yeah. So you get these glimpses of greenery, like, you know, high and low and uh, various different points through the house. Yeah. And then, you know, in summer, when you do open the door, there's a lot of kind of architectural detail that goes into the garden. So the building sort of continues into the garden in a way, which is very clever. Would you want
0: to live there, do you think? Uh, Very happily, yeah. Would you? Yeah. Yes, it's a beautiful place. Do you think that Peter Aldington is is quite an undervalued architect in a way? I mean, he should be a household name, shouldn't he, really?
1: Yes. Um, I think that is because, well, funnily enough, there are more listed post-war houses by Peter Aldington than any other architect. Is that right? Yes, and that's partly because he gave up being an architect and dedicated himself a to his garden and b to you know preserving his le- his legacy. Uh, <laughs> we have had one or two calls over the years. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Very, very protective of it. But essentially, he designed modest houses. You know, he never yeah. designed big museums or public buildings or anything like that. Yeah. You know, which is why he's not you know got a sort of Zaha Hadid type name. You know, yeah. Reputation. No, he's absolutely brilliant. I agree have you visited many of his other houses? I have. I've tried to visit as many as I can. Yeah. And I think, you know, the remarkable thing is that they very rarely come onto the market because I think people who live in them, and in fact, the original clients that he built them for are, you know, in the majority of cases still there. Yeah. You know, they, I think they really draw you in and people don't let them go lightly. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that was that's one of the downsides of our business model, I've always thought. Yeah. Is that when people buy the houses that we sell, they very rarely sell them again because yeah. it's it's just hard to to match, you know, that rare quality of of design, you know. Exactly, yeah. Well, they're buying with their heart less than their head, aren't they, a lot of the time? Yeah, It's an emotional decision. Yeah, and their lives become so integrated into the house that it becomes really difficult to kind of throw that away. Yeah. So, you know, repeat business isn't a strong point. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we talked earlier on about feeling that sense of gratitude for the things that we've been able to see, but Mm. you have been on this amazing journey where you've... You've clocked up a lot of miles in yes. your car. yeah, and yeah. And you've, you've been all over the country visiting people who are just creating incredibly engaging spaces. Yeah. And you said once that you'd kept a little notebook yeah. of design elements from yeah. each of these houses that you thought was kind of interesting or things yeah. that you liked. Yeah. And that one day this may all come together... Yeah. In a a triumphant Casa Albert, but you obviously haven't done that. But can you tell us some of the things
1: that are in that book? Because I'd be fascinated to know. Yeah, absolutely. That was a very romantic description of a travelling salesman, by the way. (laughs) Yes, and I think there are lots of notes from my visit to Turn End in that book. I mean, yeah. to describe it as a book is perhaps... <laughs> well, <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a larger book, but I actually tore out a few of the most relevant pages when I was working on, on something. Okay, go on, let's, let's hear it. It's rather grandiosely called Thoughts on Building a House. <laughs> oh, I love it. Come on, let's hear it uh the first line says remember things will be far from perfect and will rarely come out as you think they will i bet you've heard that a few times (laughs) yeah exactly that was just a reminder that you know everything on the drawings and on the you know the compute the cad images won't necessarily happen there's a great one of my favorite books is by jeremy till called architecture depends yeah which is all about how you know architects wished everything would essentially stay on the page and never actually be built because there it's perfect there and you don't get actually you know exactly <laughs> the vagaries of real life coming into it yeah so anyway the rest of it is basically a list of features with the names of the places after them okay s- such as landings with views stock orchard road no 104 orchard road i'm not sure where 104 orchard road is oh i do know it's in Hertfordshire Climbing plants, covering exterior, hide veil. White painted softwood, stable acre.
0: Uh, Stable acre being that David Cohn house in in, in Norfolk. White painted softwood, did you say?
1: White painted softwood, yeah. I I mean, that was a really, still is a really great house. It's a great house. house, isn't it? Yeah. Just for its kind of rawness and simplicity and conviction of execution, really. Exactly. And um, what have I got? Yeah, the bathroom tiles of Sphinx Hill, which is a kind of postmodern house by John Outram, which is an amazing house.
0: Well, what are the tiles like, you remember?
1: Yeah, very colourful. Yeah. You know, very multicoloured. So, I mean, you know, I think that if I put all of these random bits, so we've got a kind of crazy postmodern bathroom with a sort of, you know, you know, minimalist living room combined with a, I've got some steps up to a front door, give it a grandeur, Lexton Road, Colchester. So I've got a kind of, you know, like... <laughs> Grand Georgian entrance as well. So, you know, this is a complete Frankenstein's monster of a house. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, Can we (laughs) build it? So if it did get built one day, it would just be um, (laughs) slightly terrifying.
0: Do you think you will build your own house one day? No. No? Why not?
1: I, I don't. I'm actually working on a small refurbishment project at the moment where I'm essentially just keeping two medieval walls and building a small thing on top um so you are
0: you're you're using an architect and you are building
1: yes i am it's yeah. a very small project and you never know that might go incredibly well and that might give me the energy and excitement to go and do something bigger
0: but so why do you say no then to the idea of the house
1: because life's stressful enough <laughs> i suppose and lots of people have done really great things so you know my view is to just um yeah yeah buy a good house rather than think you can create the world's best house
0: yeah do you think that's partly because you would you not trust yourself enough in a way or would you think would you as soon as it's built would you go oh, i hate it
1: yeah i yes i would overthink every detail you know (laughs) costs would go out the window my the architect would kill me you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah sounds like an episode of grand designs <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i feel sorry enough for the architect i'm working with on this small project in dorset at the moment
0: <laughs> well just to finish i think it would just be interesting to get your thoughts on the modern house as it is today because yeah. it feels like a long way from where it started there's you know we've got i don't know 70 or so employees it's a big operation and you and i have you know deliberately entrusted you know, very large elements of it to, to others more capable than us. How do you feel about it at the moment?
1: Well, I think it's certainly much bigger in scale, but I certainly think that the kind of attitude and energy and atmosphere is almost the same, Yeah. you know. You know, that's one of the things I suppose I'm most proud of, really. You yeah. know, and I've been really excited by that growth in scale. You know, it, we never intended it to be a sort of um, exclusive club did we no we always wanted it to be as kind of open doors as possible yeah so it's great you know the more popular it gets you know the happier i am and i say this to everyone one of the things i'm also proudest of is is the team that you and i have built and the amazing people that work with us and i think everyone thinks it's all about the buildings and the interiors which of course it is but a huge part of for me is is the people. So that's the people in our community, the buyers and the sellers and everyone else, but also the people that we work with.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's nothing that beats it really. Exactly. Well, simply because a lot of us that are lucky enough to have a home, for all of us it's it's this incredibly emotional thing. A, a home is the is the crux, it's the support network for all of us, isn't it? So Yeah. Actually we are helping people at what can be quite a difficult stage of their lives, but also a really fulfilling stage as well. And and the educational aspect of what we do is I I find so fulfilling.
1: Yes. I think purely from a kind of practical point, buying and selling a house often coincides with a major shift in people's lives, you know, in a much broader sense. So to be able to help them navigate their way through that major life change and try to sort of, take as much stress out of that change as possible and hopefully you know arrive people that's somewhere wonderful yeah. um is is also part of the enjoyment of what we do i think
0: yeah you chosen three slash four houses because you cheekily got your other grandparents placing as well yeah Could was that how well, easy was and that turn
1: ends three houses and so. Turn ends
0: okay so <laughs> all right so, so it's rising
1: all the time it <laughs> was that quite difficult just out of interest what yep. else did you consider I considered Santa Marina Vella Church in Florence, which is where you and I went in our gap year, just because it was the first building that I consciously was overall, you know, totally struck by as a building. Yeah. And I just absolutely fantasized about just clearing it all out and putting one bed in it and living in it. (laughs) Did you? Yeah. I just thought that would be so cool. Yeah. And I just love it's kind of stripy and beautiful. So um, I was definitely thinking about that one. It's
0: difficult, isn't it? Because we've we visited a, a lot of houses over the years, we and have, they're, yeah. they're all incredible. Yeah. How do you possibly go about yeah, choosing I, something that summarizes everything? Well, that's
1: know? right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you can think about the best, the best bedroom I've ever visited and the best yeah. bathroom and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: which is exactly why your list of yeah. favourite elements has remained on the page. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah, hopefully the, you know, the greatest space is yet to come. Yeah, good place to finish. Was that all right? Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, thanks, enjoyed that. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: Thank you all very much for listening and I hope you're enjoying this second series of the podcast. To hear about the brilliant guests we've got coming up in the next few weeks, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. If you get the time to give us a quick review, it's always very much appreciated. You can find out more about the things we talked about today and much more besides on our website, which is themodernhouse.com. This episode was produced by Gabriella Jones and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.